sex and intimacy are not the same thing. And I'm in this process of rediscovering real intimacy. Like how mm. deep can I get with my husband? It's so surprising to me that intimacy can still be a struggle after 13 years, after being in the adult entertainment industry. You're like, that should be easy. And it actually makes it really hard. Welcome to Why Isn't Everyone Doing This? I'm Emily Fletcher and I believe that bliss is your birthright. That's why I'm calling on my world-class network to uncover the most potent, spine-tingling, even taboo healing modalities, all so you can reclaim your bliss. Let's do this. Hi, sweet friends, and welcome to Why Isn't Everyone Doing This? Today, I am so excited to bring to you a new friend, someone that we just had the beautiful opportunity to do some deep work together just yesterday, and I flew down to be on her podcast, and this morning I was like, wait, why don't we switch tables? Why don't we switch sides? I'd love to interview you. You're so fascinating. You have such a unique journey. I think there's so much that our listeners could learn about why isn't everyone consciously crafting their relationships? So today I have Candace Horbach on, who is an amazing mother of two children. She is a philanthropist. She is an entrepreneur. She is the host of Chatting with Candace, and she happens to be a former adult entertainment star. She was top 10 of all adult entertainers, and yesterday I had the fortune of working with her and her husband. It was so beautiful to watch their level of love, their level of coherence, their level of trust, and I have so so many questions of like, how did you get here? What got inflamed? What was it like? And how did you consciously craft your relationship so that you could be living the lives that you are? So Candice, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. I feel like we have just gotten so deep together so quickly. And I just, I love where this is going. So I learned about you. You emailed me sort of like from my POV out of the blue. You had seen me on the Aubrey Marcus podcast and you were like, hey, I'd love to work together. And so I'm curious like how did you get there like what inspired you to want to like email a stranger and be like hey can you come to my house and do very intimate vulnerable work with me and my husband that's a really brave thing to do and so I'm just curious what inspired that I feel like some of that is just my personality. I've always kind of lived on the edges that's my comfort zone surprisingly mm -hmm. so if I'm not Kind of the edge is your comfort the zone? The edge is my comfort wow. zone. So I almost, like, the worst place you could put me is, like, in the middle with everybody else. Mm. Like, that to me just makes me feel, like, invisible and inauthentic and some th part of me is being suffocated. So I feel like I breathe when I can separate myself. And wow. I... It just feels authentic to me, so I make some of the, these decisions like getting into adult work and people are like, how could you possibly? But for me, that felt like the truest thing I could do at the time for myself. Mm -hmm. um, so when I emailed you, sexuality is always like this very curious thing of mine and how we explore it and our stories around it, the healing that can happen with it. Mm -hmm. Even someone like me who, you know, might seem very progressive when it comes to these, I understand that there's still a lot of hurt that can come from it, even if you think you're making these decisions consciously. A lot of hurt that can come from what? From exchanges, like from sexual exchanges, mm -hmm. from deciding to film it, from deciding for, to have it on the internet forever. Um, when you make these decisions, especially at a younger age, you don't under understand necessarily all of the effects like that are going to ripple from it. So I knew that there was still some intimacy I had to work on because those are very different things. Sex and intimacy are not the same thing and we can't, we often conflate them. And I'm in this process of rediscovering real intimacy. Like how mm. deep can I get with my husband? Mm -hmm. And it's so surprising to me that intimacy can still be a struggle after 13 years, after being in the adult entertainment industry. You're like, that should be easy. And it actually makes it really hard. It makes it really difficult, especially if you're constantly in this space of performing or um, just sex, right? Like junk food sex, not spiritual sex. Ooh, not... I've never heard of that junk yeah. food sex. Mm -hmm. That's such a fascinating Which distinction. Is like, yeah, like potato chips are okay now and then, pizza's okay now and then, but you don't want to overindulge. So if you're yeah. overindulging in this sexual exchange that there's no real connection or commitment or intimacy, then you can kind of lose your way and it'll feel foreign when, when you start entering that space. So I watched your podcast and I was I just felt gravitated towards you. I was like, she is doing what she's supposed to be doing. She's so honest. Mm. And I think when you see that, like you can't argue that truth. And I was, how many people are doing the work that you're doing? Almost nobody, if mm. not nobody. Um, and I was like, she, I just felt like I could learn from you. And luckily mm. I have a husband who is 
on board. I just like, hey, do you want to do this? We're going to do pl- uh, pleasure prayer, pleasure practice. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what that is. But sign me up. I'm, <laughs> I'll show up. It was so funny yesterday when I was like doing the intro and I was like, you know, what do you know? What do you not know? And he was like, nothing. And I was like, sir, you are brave. <laughs> just inviting a stranger in. And he played full out. Yes, he did. It was really impressive. But truly, the thing I was struck by is that like, even if I did not know that you had a history of being in the adult entertainment industry, I would have commented on like the health and the beauty. Obviously, I just knew you for one day, but you can feel. Like mm-hmm. You can feel when there's real trust and transparency and when when partners are working as a team. Mm-hmm. And it really feels like y'all have created that. And so when I asked you to be on the show, I was like, what is your version of why isn't everyone doing this? And you said, you know, why isn't everyone consciously crafting their relationship? And I imagine that that's something y'all have really had to do because, you know, like, even doing this work, which is pretty mild, like when I'm doing this work with people, it's more about like them and their dreams, them and their soul. You're sort of in your own energy bubble. You're not really physically interacting with anyone else. And yet it still is triggering sometimes for my boyfriend. And certainly like my family is just like, what are you doing now? You went from meditation (laughs) to what? (laughs) And, And so I'm curious what it has triggered in your relationship and yeah, what's been like the most challenging part? And and were you already in the industry when y'all met? So we met as I was getting into it. Okay. So I started off just webcamming and then mm-hmm. slowly moved to just girl, girl film. So I very slowly kind of got into the industry and he was there the whole time. And the hardest part, like most men don't have an issue with girls with girls, Mm -hmm. women with women. It's just not a thing that's triggering for them. But once I started having the conversation of wanting to get into like male-female scenes, um, at first it was like a hard stop no. And I don't think I was necessarily ready at the time that I first presented it. So I was like, okay, like I'm not going to argue this one and we'll just put it on the back burner. Mm -hmm. And then I got presented with an opportunity that kind of like didn't exist, which is like contracts. And to me, that's something that I really wanted. I want. What's that mean? Like you're contracted to one company so that you're not a freelance performer you have like a back lot of, in the day of like the golden age of hollywood and like yeah. I'm, like i'm an mgm contracted right. actor yeah okay. so similar would be like the vivid girls were really put on a pedestal and i had um a, an opportunity to be with like this very prestigious company and i thought that it a lot of ego was behind it if i'm being honest right like i wanted to be a contract girl and i liked the stability that it offered i liked having predictable income and not having to hustle so much and i knew that i had to do it if i wanted to get to the next level of my career We got to a place, and I mean, this was like a year-long conversation of back and forth, back and forth, and can we handle it? And neither of us had any examples ahead of us. Like, no one that we knew was in any kind of atypical relationship. Everyone was monogamous. It was the, you know, college married kids. Well, that's a question I have. Like, do you, are you outside of the work? Do you consider, are y'all monogamous? We say monogamish. Okay. So, like, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's open for possibilities. Mm -hmm. No one has... No one has taken that opportunity in a very long time. It's just not that season. But the way that we kind of look at where our bumpers are for our rules is we just constantly are checking in like, hey, how do you feel? And we still have rules for our relationship. And one of the ones that has always been there is, you know, we're each other's first. Like if the if our foundation is not solid, if we're not solid, it's not even a question if that's a possibility. So it's that we are each other's you know, it's foundation. We have a family. Yeah. So we're not going to like, if we're not in a good space, like add drama and an unnecessary weight to that. So smart. And we can do a whole podcast just on that monogamy mm-hmm. and monogamish. I've, I was in a relationship once where our rule was don't ask, don't tell. And it's like, oh no, Emily, like that's <laughs> the worst. Like mm-hmm. you, if you're going to open up anything at all, you got to ask everything. You got to tell everything mm-hmm. because if you don't have that transparency or that solid foundation, then it's like you're outsourcing versus it being supplemental. Right. It's mm-hmm. so I really learned that distinction the hard way. And it's also a really easy way to not be honest with yourself of how, of how you feel with that. Right. Like you could say, um, I'm OK being in an open relationship. I'm OK being poly. I'm OK being monogamish. But if you can't tell me about it. Well, why can't I tell you about it? Because is it going to cause like this huge fight? Yeah. And then are you going to leave me or lock me out or, you know, file for divorce, whatever it is? Um, so if like you can't tell me without there being this explosion or there's an uncertainty if that's going to if that's going to happen, then I would say that there needs to be a lot more communication and even just internally with yourself mm-hmm. as, as to like what you want out of 
the structure of that relationship. Mm, cool. Okay, so you're just getting into the industry and y'all are together. And then you had a big conversation. You had the opportunity to become contract, but that required male, female. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? So we decided we would try it on and we kind of gave each other full permission to experience it how we were going to experience it. So if he was going to get mad, I had to honor that. If I was going, um, like, I, and at the same time, I couldn't be, like, punished for doing a scene. So it had to be a healthy conversation. It couldn't be him belittling me or calling me a whore or anything like that. That's not constructive. But he's allowed to be mad. He's allowed to be jealous because, of course, mm-hmm. right, he's never experienced this with anyone else. So I think... We maybe had um, like a naive optimism of like, we can love conquers all, baby, and we got We're this. different. Yeah, we're different. <laughs> we're so spiritual. We're so evolved. <laughs> I, my base human won't get triggered. Right. I'm a confident woman. I'm not threatened. And I'm a confident man. I'm not threatened. And we, I started doing the scenes. And surprisingly, I think one of the things that was the hardest for him wasn't necessarily me doing the scenes. It was everyone's opinion of him letting me do the oh, like it felt emasculating for him or he felt like cuckolded yeah. or he would get feedback from people like how are you letting your wife do that right interesting yeah and i mean he wrestled with that because i mean him and i are in agreement that there's no letting me do anything i'm my right. own person that's right and he has no interest in controlling me which is why he's like do what you want to do i think there was a lot of honesty in the fact that he said i don't know how i'm going to respond and i can't promise you that you know, I'm going to be around at the end. I don't want to inhibit you and your path, like move forward and do your thing. I want to be, but I just can't promise. And I was like, that's, that's so honest. so honest. Right. Yeah, and, and refreshing. It, and like, it wasn't an ultimatum. Yeah, he's taking responsibility and taking care of himself. Mm-hmm. He's honoring your preferences and mm-hmm. your desires for your career. Mm-hmm. Really, bravo, Eric. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was incredible. So we... <sighs> I didn't, I guess while I was on set, I've always been kind of like an introvert. So I, I don't like really mingle a lot. That wasn't really, um, I don't really socialize a ton. I, again, like outside, that's where I'm, where I'm comfortable. And I would see a lot of these women that were in the industry and they had what other than them shooting a typical monogamous relationship. So like the guy on the other end was not allowed to partake in anything extracurricular. And I just saw that falling apart. And Oh, so like you're talking other people in the industry are in relationships and that relationship is monogamous. Mm -hmm. So their partner is like expected to only be with that person. Mm -hmm. And if he has any, he has interactions physically with anyone else, then it's a game deal breaker. Big problem. Okay. And I just found that to be really hypocritical, um, unfair. I think if the relationship's that unbalanced, it's almost more than likely doomed. Mm -hmm. Like, so I wanted a level playing field. The justification from some of the women I talked to was that, you know, sex is different when you're getting paid and well, I'm like, I'm sure your partner probably doesn't see like a huge distinction there. Like it's still a, a very intimate and like sexual, it's still sexual. Or even if you intellectually can distinguish the, the body, like the animalistic body right. might not be able to distinguish. And the reality is you have to negotiate with all parts, like the head, the heart and the hoo-ha mm. because we are holistic humans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just, I was like, that's not the model I want to do. That doesn't seem fair. And I was the most wildly jealous person. So it was a very big step for me what? to say. <laughs> like the rules are the same for you and you're allowed you know you're allowed to go and play especially like if i'm shooting for two weeks out in california and you're stuck on the east coast like do what you want to do mm-hmm. and i think and did you guys have to like approve would he have to be like hey babe i'm gonna go have this experience or would he ever have to like sign off on the people you were shooting with no 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 to either we still had like some rules so he you know he's an entrepreneur he has his other businesses like no one that works for you for obvious reasons um we had like rules about like not in the bed like our bed like we had protected spaces i was still wildly triggered the first time it happened i remember being like whoa and it gave me perspective to what he was going through and i think that that helped the relationship a lot because it wasn't it was a lot harder for me to be selfish like just lazy and selfish and say deal with it you know my career is taking off and i'm so successful and i love what i'm doing and i i i i i but by leveling the playing field it really made me come face to face with my own programming Mm -hmm. and what relationships meant what a healthy relationship meant and just because a couple's monogamous does that mean they're healthy and thriving and happy and that's the best for everybody and i would say no because all my relationships prior were monogamous but they were super controlling even from my end and possessive and there wasn't this trust or safety and there was a lot of insecurity and 
when you meet someone and you're so young, you're in your 20s and let's say we live to 100 now, does that really make sense? Does mm. one person for the rest of my life make sense? Is that what I want? And it's not to say to all the listeners that you have to be monogamish or open, but it's just like question the standard programming that's there. And like, do you want it? Yes or no? Is it going to be sustainable? Um if you have a fight and honest and honest, yeah, even with yourself, so many of us are like, I'm not, I not for me, I'm not that sexual anyways, and one person's enough, and maybe that's true. Um, but also, do you want your relationship to be so fragile that if something happens, whether it's someone cheats or whether it's, um, you know, maybe he goes out to the bar he's not supposed to go to or a strip club he's not supposed to go to or he gambles a little bit more than he said he did, whatever it is, like we all have like our Achilles heel within the relationship is it that fragile or do I have trust and does he have trust that he can come to me when he does make a mistake and then we can like repair that together? Yeah, that to me is like one of the big benefits of consciously creating a relationship is that you it forces you to create the repair tools. Mm -hmm. And then we realize that intimacy is not about two people having perfect track records, that actually intimacy can be born and deepened through the repair. And if you think if someone's going into business, like if you and I were going to start a business together and we were co-founders of a company, we wouldn't just be like, oh, let's take this stock contract off the internet and we'll just sign it and make no revisions. Like we would go through and be like, these are my terms for being a business partner with you and you would go through and have your terms and we would negotiate them before we would ever sign a contract or go into business together and that's what a marriage is that's what relationships are certainly when you start a family you're co-CEOs of this business mm -hmm. and so I love this idea of consciously creating your relationship because why on earth would we accept some stock contract that was created 200 years ago by a church that was trying to control and thought that women were property anyway? Like, why on earth would we allow that to dictate one of the most important romantic, physical, financial, and emotional decisions of our lives? Sweet friend, if you are loving this conversation and would like to dive deeper into these powerful modalities, I want to invite you to join me at zivameditation.com slash why this. Now there you're going to find free bonus content that we simply could not fit inside of the episodes. I'm talking mini masterclasses with our amazing guests like Aubrey Marcus, Layla Martin, Blue, Vailana, and myself. So come experience the tools that we reveal in the podcast for yourself. Simply head to zivameditation.com slash why this. So besides like the monogamish piece, like how else have you consciously created your relationship? I think a lot of it is around being really honest with myself and my temper that I've really am trying to like continuously transcend and I am eons away from who I was in my 20s and then my teens and like you when you get triggered you go to anger yeah that's my neutral okay what do you mean that's your neutral well I should say that hat was my neutral like it was almost like you know how I feel like people can kind of like go throughout life operating in like a, a, a neutral frequency like not like neutral not charged but like neutral like some people are just more in like a peace state some people might be in more of like a sad depressed state some people are just hanging out and angry like and what's anger. your baseline yeah okay yeah or like that's like the next gear at least right like that's the first gear that someone will shift into mm -hmm. almost like a habit so my my habitual either like constant state or like the very next gear was anger it was like that because that makes me strong i'm not mm -hmm. like i'm not gonna be sad because then i'm weak and vulnerable and mm -hmm. that doesn't work for me especially with my past so it's like no i'm gonna be strong and protective and sovereign so i'm angry i'm righteously angry yeah i'm gonna protect that vulnerability with my sword and my shield and right. i'm gonna be the masculine because i can't trust the masculine and then then there's no room for him and one of the beautiful things about our relationship is he's never been somebody that just like will bend to me like just like okay have it your way or i'm so sorry or what do you need to like he'll challenge me so like is that really how you want to behave right now is that how you want to communicate like Ooh. i'm not you know what i mean like in a loving way but then i'm like oh wait this isn't good right if there's any conflict and i immediately come to him and start tearing him down or make it personal or be vindictive then that's not creating an open dialogue for a healthy relationship that's not one that's gonna last so i think trust kind of goes both ways it's him having trust in me that he can mess up he he doesn't have to be perfect and that i'm gonna have a space for him to come to me when these things happen i can't go straight to anger i have to assume the best out of him which is mm. one of the best pieces of advice i've ever been given when it comes to relationships it's before you say, you know, he just got home from like a 10 hour shift and he just went to sleep on the sofa and I'm going to be like, you lazy piece of blah, blah, blah. I've been mm -hmm. here all day with the kids. Instead of 
automatically blaming him it's assume the best out of him like maybe he's fucking exhausted and he really needs that time right Mm. and he does he gives that to me all of the time as well so i should be giving that to him i love that i just want to underscore that like a version of true love like a version of actively if you're gonna make love a verb Mm. one thing that we can do is give our partners the benefit of the doubt like um, my friend Annie Lala, who's an amazing relationship coach, she says like be like your partner's best PR team. That mm. you have like 10 PR agents in your head arguing for their highest good and their best, which mm. I think is a, a good relationship hack. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. how often do we automatically – because we don't want to blame ourselves and we don't want – it's just easier to out – outsource that and put it on somebody else and not look at herself so when anytime I find myself in the habit of being judgmental or critical I tried as hard as I can like hit the brakes and then put that positive light on it we kind of call it like the red light green light so when you're looking back at things that happen do you want to shine like a green light on it and look at the most optimistic well-intentioned reasons why x y and z happened or do you want to shine a red light on it and be like blame guilt shame um, laziness, whatever it is. Okay, I need I need this coaching right now because <laughs> I have very much been in like massive judgment in my relationship, and it's been a big deal. And I'm I'm aware intellectually that you know all judgment is judgment of the self. And I even went to this stupid cave. It wasn't stupid; it was amazing. <laughs> I, like went to a cave for five days to feel my feelings, and I went in with the intention of like let me transmute this judgment with love. Like let me see where I am judging myself so that I can stop projecting it onto my partner. And like day four and a half, and I am still just like Judge Judy is raging, feeling more righteous, better than. And I was like, oh no, am I going to leave this cave like more judgmental than I came in? And so. And then thankfully, I recognized that like this very foundational belief that I had as a child that like I have to hold it all together. If I don't, it'll fall apart. And so when I do that, when I assume that sort of masculine role of holding it all together, then I'm mad. I'm one, like martyring myself. I'm like, oh, let me be the martyr. And then I'm mad that someone else isn't holding it Mm -hmm. when I have like stone fisted the fact that like I have to hold it. And so in the moment, like not everyone's going to go to a cave for five days and have this realization. Mm -hmm. So when you're in that moment and you're triggered and you're going to anger or you're going to judgment, like how do you in the moment go from red light judgment to green light, like giving them the benefit of the doubt? So sometimes it's not instantaneous. Like sometimes I just am like, how dare you, blah, 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 or why aren't you X, Y, Z? I like I thrive with space. So if I can like feel viscerally that I'm like, um, contracting and like I'm getting into that that anger state is I'll just leave for a little bit and he knows to give me my space and I will like breathe calm like try to calm myself down just like through breathing exercises or meditation or just like silence and alone time and then I look for evidence so you go internally and you look for evidence like is he these things that my monkey mind is telling me mm-hmm. or is he this incredible man that I know him to be. Mm-hmm. And as you sit there with time, silence, and space, I think that you can find the evidence very easily, one way or another. And then it's like easy to identify that voice in your head, whether it's like, so there's this other tool, it's the sage or the saboteur in your mind. So the saboteur is he's lazy. He'll never make any money. I'm always going to have to provide. His ADD is so annoying. Why can't he be present? That's my saboteur. And then if I look for my sage, that sage is highlighting or green lighting um, all of the beautiful things that he is, which is a very present father, a very present husband, very giving, very loving. And it gives me all of the counter evidence to my monkey mind. So it's just like looking for evidence like if um, and getting yourself out of that emotional space because there's this idea of you have um, you operate in like these waves, right? And if you're at the top of the wave, then it's very easy to see green light. It's very easy to see nothing but good. Like but, on the top of an emotional wave or yeah, like frequency? Just, you like a frequency, just like a place. Like if you're having a great day or you've had a great week or month or whatever it is, like you're riding this wave. But then at the bottom, when the wave crashes down, all you're going to see is the bottom because that's where you're hanging out. Your perspective is just different, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're, it's going to look different from like the peak of a mountain than in the valley. So you just have to recognize like, where am I? Am I in a place that's low? Because now... I know that everything I'm seeing is not accurate like I'm so narrow Mm -hmm. and I'm only seeing the low so it's just like checking in with all of these different tools and like 
really being honest with yourself and where you're at. And then it's all about you. Like you said, it's a mirror. It's all about you. So I'm in a low. It's not that he sucks. It's that I'm not in a good place emotionally right now. Yeah, I love that. There's a line from the Vedas, which is like, we're all always only commenting on our own state of consciousness. (laughs) Right? It's like, everything is bad and everything. The world is terrible and the world is stressy. It's like, all we're doing is commenting on our own lens through which we are perceiving reality. Mm -hmm. And conversely, if we can have the level of mastery and use the tools like meditation and breath work and sacred sexuality and get ourselves into these higher frequencies, that will be the lens through which we not only see our relationships, but also reality itself. And it starts to almost be a self-fulfilling prophecy. At least that's how my experience has been within my own relationship. So it's almost like the more pressure I put on him and the more that I tried to mommy him or be the man in the relationship, like there was just no room for him and there was too much pressure for him to grow and build and be the successful person that I was demanding that he was. But once I let go of that demand, his business has started to take off. He our like the polarity in our relationship started to get a lot sexier and happier and I started to feel safe like I felt like I could be vulnerable but I was getting in my own way by creating all of these demands and all the of this pressure on him it's like who performs that great under pressure most people don't most people will kind of like default to some kind of shutdown or like uh, stifling so it's like relieving some of that pressure which is ultimately on ourself it's like why can't you be so successful that's my own self-doubt that's like I don't know how long I can hold all of this and I'm so fucking tired so won't someone help me but it's again like you're just kind of creating this crazy eight pattern back and forth back and forth Mm. thank you so much for sharing your experience I'm really resonating so much with it and we were talking earlier about like this whole generation of I mean I'll speak very generally and heteronormatively but like a whole generation of women who perhaps didn't have like a healthy father figure or masculine because in that day and age it was like the man was expected to like work all the time or was traveling and, and not go to therapy and that feelings were weak. And so we had like a generation of unavailable emotionally and sometimes physically fathers. So then like we learn not to trust the masculine, but we were also raised in this age of feminism where we're trying to earn equal pay. So we're becoming more masculine or trying to be more like the male. Mm-hmm. And that has created like a, a wave of emasculated men which is like not fun for anyone. Like we don't, we want that polarity. We want that arrows of, of going back and forth. So I, I feel like this is so relevant. I'm seeing it happen in so many of my circles. And so I really appreciate you like leaning into your femininity and, and like taking off that burden, right? Of like, I don't want to hold it all mm-hmm. anymore. And, and I, ultimately I don't, I don't have to. And then him rising to the challenge. And you have to be willing to give it to someone else. That's the tricky part because he's like, I'm here. I've got these big, strong shoulders. Just give it to me. And I'm like, I can't because you're going to drop it. I just fucking know you're going to drop it. He's like, I'm not going to drop it. But in my life, in my entire, you know, at the time, 20 something years of life, anytime I gave that to anybody, man or woman, it was dropped. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that is like not punishing him for the people of my past and treating him like a new person, too. Mm -hmm. And like that work takes a lot of reprogramming of the nervous system and so I'm curious to know I just want to like rewind a little bit so like what was it inspired you to want to go into the adult industry like what was I know you said you live on the edge mm-hmm. but there's a, I mean you could have been like a mountain climber or like skydiver or like there's a lot of edges but what was it about that that inspired you that, that drew you to it it's always so hard to answer this question and I, the one that I'm because I, I feel like I'm like live figuring this out every time I do a podcast I'm like I get a new piece of information and a new perspective and I feel like the answer to that is a a constellation of things right the reason that we end up wherever we are is because of nature nurture what we were exposed to culture at the time our parenting Mm -hmm. um, how many siblings we had all of these things and I grew up in a time where like, it was the Playboy era, it was Baywatch, it was Pamela Anderson, Carmen Electra, Tara Patrick, all of these powerhouse goddesses that were everywhere. My dad um, always had like those magazines or was watching Baywatch and I just like knew that these women, and it, this is maybe even like kind of sad, but it, it was like these women were getting attention, his attention. Mm-hmm. I wasn't getting it. Mm-hmm. And I saw that as extremely powerful. I saw them as extremely beautiful. And I was like, well, they've figured something out. There's something within, um, whether it was like their line of work or just an inner essence that they've discovered, like that gravity, like that sexual female power um, gravity was sucking my dad in and all these other men and 
you know, you'd see cameras everywhere and crowds of people and they were getting love Mm. for that. And I craved that so badly. And for some reason, that channel just seemed like my channel. Like, I'm not going to go climb a mountain. I'm very, surprisingly, very risk averse. I'm like, this is really high. I don't want to do this. But that seems fine and safe. And it just felt true to me. Other than like, Mm -hmm. there's this indescribable pull that I had towards tapping into sexuality mm-hmm. and sensuality. Mm-hmm. And I know you shared with me that like 90% of your experience was really positive mm-hmm. and consensual and you wanted to be there, but like maybe 10% was was not. Is there anything that you want to share about like maybe like your highest high or your lowest low? Um, like an experience where you're just like, yes, like I am living my dharma. I am like so grateful and so proud of what I'm doing. And then also maybe the converse of, oof, like that was tough and that maybe felt like a violation or, or whatever your lowest low was. So my two highest highs, uh, my one was when I won the because the contract was a competition and I just knew I was going to win it. I don't know how to explain it. I was like, this is mine. I already got it. And <laughs> Manifestation at its finest. <laughs> Seriously. And you might actually say that this is the case. So the very last um, challenge was this live orgy scene and I'd never done one but I knew everyone that was there and all the guys that were there I was on my yes list so I was down wherever it was going to go and it's live and people are voting and commenting and this whole it's thing. happening live yeah live streaming orgy <laughs> Woo! so I end up winning live I, mean, I did Broadway for 10 years <laughs> and that feels a little stress inducing I don't me. know I got into a flow state and I, I didn't see any cameras I didn't see cameramen sound men lighting I just I just saw what was kind of in front of me and Mm -hmm. I was alive I was so alive and I won all the votes got tallied in they hand me this giant check and that's like you know theatrical so oh like like publisher's clearing house (laughs) (laughs) and I was like this is incredible like I knew I was gonna win this thing and the last thing was I always wanted to be a pet house pet like that was kind of why I got in and right before I retired from the industry I ended up getting pet house pet for December it's like the last issue for the year so it was like my cherry on top I did it I'm complete I can now go on to the next thing oh what a gift to like to climb the mountain that feels important to you to climb before you retire Mm -hmm. I before I actually right after I left Broadway I was on Broadway for 10 years and I left the industry I'm like training to be a meditation teacher teaching acting and I got a call from this woman named Bayork Lee, who's the director of A Chorus Line. And she was like, Shishi. She called me Shishi because I played Sheila. And she was like, I want you to sing at the ballet because sadly Marvin Hamlish had passed. Um, Marvin Hamlish is one of the few people who've won a PGOT, so Pulitzer, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. And he had passed away. He was the lyricist for A Chorus Line. And his favorite song was At the Ballet, which is a song that I sang. And so I got invited to sing at his memorial service, like basically at his funeral, which was at Juilliard. And I show up for the rehearsal. And I think it's just going to be like a couple hundred like Broadway performers in a church or something. But no, it's like on stage at Juilliard. Mike Nichols is directing, who's a very famous like movie director and theater director. I go on stage and he's like, "Uh, Emily Darling, uh, just bring the microphone on with you because we don't know what Liza's going to do. And I was like, Liza... Manelli? And he was like, uh, yes. And I was like, what? I'm going on after Liza Manelli. And then we go up in the dressing room and I hear this voice and I was like, who is that? And they're like, oh, that's Aretha Standen. And I was like, Aretha Franklin? And they're like, yeah, she doesn't do sound checks. And I was like, cool. And then we're leaving the theater and I see this star and it says Streisand. And I was like, is Barbara fucking Streisand singing this thing? And so that was the last thing I ever did. I was sandwiched between Aretha Franklin and Liza Minnelli. And Whoa. I was like, good night, mic drop. Like, I'm yes. never topping that. Like, I got to go. Oh, my God. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was so fun. But I do think it gives you this level of closure where it's like, cool, I did the thing. Like, I climbed the mountain and it frees you up to move on to the next mm-hmm. chapter. And so I'm curious to know, like, this new chapter for you. I know that you're an amazing mother of two humans. You have this podcast and you're a philanthropist. And so what? talk to me about this chapter and what it's been like to, like, move on from the industry and what it's given you and then also maybe some drawbacks because I know it's been tough, like, living in North Carolina. Like, there's just a lot of conditioning and judgment and shame around obviously sex and sexuality but and certainly even more so porn oh absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like the way that i look at it is that uh porn has given me an incredible blessing because of people's judgment so it forces you to do better it forces you to work on yourself and do something 
next. It doesn't allow you to kind of stay there for forever. Otherwise, you are forever deplorable and can't come back to civilized society. So it's like if you want a chance at retribution, you have to work on yourself where a lot of people can kind of be complacent because there isn't that external pressure. So you could look at it and say society is not accepting. How dare they? my choices are my choices and they don't affect you. So you shouldn't be forever punishing me, which I agree with. You know what I mean? I think I should be allowed to make my choices so long as it's not imposing any, um, like oppression or violence onto someone else and like their sovereignty, as long as it's only my decision, but Mm -hmm. that's not the way it works. So (laughs) your mind can know that, but then Mm -hmm. your body that wants acceptance and love and to be a part of the tribe, like Mm -hmm. your body knows something different, which Mm -hmm. is like, if I get kicked out of this tribe, I might die alone on the Sahara with no food. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think that I'm revisiting that a lot more now that I'm a parent. I think I was in that illusion for a while where I'm fine. I've got my friends and like my close knit circle and everyone knows what I do and accepts me for who I am and doesn't um, doesn't judge me in any way. But then you have kids and you're forced into this other ecosystem where you can't like there's no choice unless you were to completely homeschool and live in this little bubble. And I don't think that that's what I want for my kids. Mm -hmm. So it's if I'm going to now raise other members of society and I now have to deal with other parents. So I'm Mm -hmm. always waiting for that shoe to drop. And what's that conversation going to be like? And how horrible is it going to be if and unfortunately probably when there's a parent that is like you can't hang out with so-and-so because of his mom and i have to explain that and that's Mm -hmm. gonna suck Mm. um but that is you know hopefully if hopefully down the road and i hope that to gain some more tools to be able to handle that appropriately when it when it happens but and have you had any experiences so far of like people in your community here that have sort of even outside of your kids been like oh we can't associate with them Yeah. So my husband's an entrepreneur, like not in the business whatsoever, never has been. His greatest sin is that he fell in love and married me. Like that's, that's it really. And our, our work is very different, (laughs) like very, very different. And he's, um, like every dream he has is a moonshot. Like he's got this big, beautiful brain and he was working on some technology at the time. And we had some local competition where they were supposed to give, be giving away funding he was supposed to win this funding until they found out who he was married to. And this very who's to be known guy in town, like very old money and um, old boys club kind of mentality, went around to individuals, some people that were actually supposed to be on the board of my husband's business. And were like, you don't want to be associated with him. This is his wife. It's just bad. Um, investors aren't going to go into it. He's, you know, giving them the morality p- pitch. Meanwhile, he comes from big tobacco. So we're going to say, like, who's really causing the most harm on people? But that's, like, another thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's already had a lot of real-world implications. But I find it to be a really good filter because I don't, I don't try to operate from a place of judgment or a place of control with other people. I think that there's a whole host of reasons that people do the things that they do and they are the way that they are. And, again, if you're not... It's that whole like non-aggression principle. If you're not violating that, then I really don't have any qualms with you. So if I operate like that, tribe is very important to me. And I want to know that the people on my most inner circle are um, have the same principles and values as me. So if you're going to be in a place where you're influencing my family and my children, like you better, we better agree on these, these pillars. So if you are going to write me off so easily, or you're so riddled with shame that my existence is making you that defensive, then you're just not from my tribe and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And and I imagine that that has been a, like a, I mean, it speaks to you and your state of consciousness and your resilience and like a forced byproduct of of being in this in this career and I'm just I'm so sorry that that's impacted you already and and I'm and I'm quite sure will as as in the future as your as your kids get older Mm -hmm. so I'm curious to know like where would you draw the line because like the line between this conditioning and shame and cultural uh like divorcing of our own divinity from our own sexuality that's inherent inside of all humans, like even monks, right? <laughs> like, uh, even monks to some degree. Um, and because like I'm not in adult entertainment and even stepping my toes into this water of talking about you could use your sexual energy to manifest your dreams. You even mentioned the word sexuality or sacred sexuality and people's walls go up, their defenses go up, their conditioning, their trauma, their abuse, their shame, that comes up big time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to know, and, and so I'm fighting this fight of like, hey, everyone, like 
just you cultivating your own creation energy does not mean that you are doing anything that might go against your morality, your religion, your ideals. And so I'm curious for you, like, where do you find the line between people's just like repression and conditioning around sexuality itself versus like judgment of porn it's as an industry or as an entertainment? I don't know that you can separate them, honestly, because mm-hmm. when you look at the criticisms of porn, like the the mass criticisms, like obviously there's some nuance there because we don't really know. It's still the concept of it and the accessibility is so new. Mm-hmm. So to deny and say that this is the only thing in existence that has no consequence doesn't make sense. There has to be. We like, kind of like we um, everything has a trade off. So. There probably is something happening, right? We don't know what that is. We don't know if there is a long-term consequence, what happens when um, kids or teens access it. We don't know because unfortunately it's so accessible and they've tried to do studies on a brain um, that hasn't had consumed pornography compared to one that's consuming it to just to like see if there's any neurological differences. But the problem is, is when someone gets to 18, because obviously you can't conduct the study on a minor, that they've already consumed it. Right. Right. So we uh-huh. don't know. And but I mean, that it feels like even if you couldn't do like total like, sorry for this term, but like virginal brains, right? Of like yeah. someone who's never consumed porn. Mm-hmm. But even if you were to look at frequency, like sugar or something, mm-hmm. like how many times a week are you consuming sugar or mm-hmm. alcohol? If it's like once or twice a month versus once every day, like I wonder, could that happen? And have they done those studies past 18? I think that they have looked at some people that claim to be addicted to pornography, but no neuroscientist is going to call it an actual addiction. It's more of like a compulsion issue. Mm. So they don't classify porn or sex as something that's um, that you can become addicted to just mm. from a uh, professional standpoint. Now, obviously, you can get into, again, a habitual like people can have a habitual issue with it where they're watching eight hours. That's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, I just lost my train of thought. What was the original question just looking at the differences between like people's shame and programming mm-hmm. around sexuality mm-hmm. in general right which i think we have a lot of healing to do versus people's judgment of pornography yeah so if you look at the main critiques of porn it's that it's going to lower your testosterone that's not true if you look at it and you say that it's degrading to women that's not true it's shot for um, it's a male product it's not designed for women so women that are automatically like the woman is being degraded and victimized look at gay porn like male male porn it is shot just as invasive or quote quote degrading as hetero male female porn it's just that they've figured out a way to kind of hack the male brain um, and figure out how can I get them to watch the most spend the most what it's going to be the most exciting to them and arousing to them and that's all that it really is Mm -hmm. so it's just like how do I get the most male attention so if you have a female product it's shot very differently and there is there are some um, boutique studios that are making pornography for women and again shot very differently storyline is huge romance is huge Um, so I think like those narratives, obviously there's the religious aspect to it. But if you look at the main critiques, you have to say like, is that st- statistically sound? Is there any like scientific evidence that is suggesting any, any of this? And if you actually look at it holistically, the answer is no. So mm. if it's not scientifically based, where is that criticism coming from? But I'm curious to know like how many studies are happening? Like are people studying it? Some people are. They have to be individually funded because pretty much even in the scientific community, if you say sex researcher, so um, one of my friends, Dr. Deborah So, that was what she was doing until like now she kind of is an author and exploring like the podcast space. But getting funding, she says, is almost impossible. You kind of have to go to Canada where they're a little bit more open to it. You cannot get funding in the States. And this other doctor, she's a, um, a neuroscientist and also sex researcher, Dr. Nicole Prousey. I think she's operating in California, but almost all of her funding is also private because, again, she's researching sex and porn and we can't learn about those things, which is crazy because we are, we we know the benefits of orgasm we know the benefits of um, a healthy sex life and it does help with with brain health it helps with your metabolism it helps with your immune system but we're not studying it mm-hmm. and why is that so again if you if you're like well why 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 if it's not statistically sound it has to be coming from somewhere else so where is that is that from this lingering repression that we have from religion and i would have to say yes because if you look at other countries it's not there like the if you go to europe pornography is on the tv like any tv regular cable after like 10 o'clock you know it's not looked at the way they actually have these ads where they'll take um 
really famous porn stars from Europe. And in the, the one I remember seeing was this porn star couple comes in and they knock on the door and the parents answer. And they're like, who are you? And I think they're naked in it, but I'm not sure. And they're like, oh, I'm so-and-so. They say their stage name and they hand them the laptop. They're like, you know what your kid was doing upstairs? And it puts the responsibility back on the parent. Yeah. Like porn is for adults, period. So it's from over there. It's like, we are not condemning porn. We're saying as a parent, like have cyber, like your cybersecurity in place. Like make sure that you have the apps and the tracking tools, and you're not letting this be accessible to to children. Mm, so that is something I really would love to talk about because mm. I, for years now, I've been getting this download that's like tantra for teens, tantra for teens, and I'm like, no, thank you, please stop it. That sounds like a terrible idea, and yet it, it won't go away. And I think because so many of our children, and really young, I mean, I, I don't know the exact stats, but I think it's like seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Like Single digits, yeah. Yeah, the like kids mm-hmm. are consuming porn and this becomes their education ground. And I think that, I mean, and you tell me, but like, I I don't I don't want my son learning about sexuality from pornography. No, absolutely not. Yeah. And absolutely so it's like, not. That's not its function. That's not its role. And and so how do we then like open up the conversation and in, and give parents and families the tools to have these conversations about a really important part of life that can be so sacred, that can be so healing, that is a potent and powerful medicine? And so how do we instill the reverence with our children without the fear, right? Oof, yeah. And the problem is, is if you try to introduce a product that's for anyone under 18, you're going to automatically get the super religious people that are like, immediately she's a predator like no like you need to talk to your kids about sex like that exists and if you don't someone else is going to so do you want the tools and material to do it do you want someone to create them for you do you want a blueprint because so many times parents like well there's no blueprint what do i do so like someone like you could quite literally make a blueprint but then Mm -hmm. you again you're gonna get criticized for that or say that it's inappropriate Mm -hmm. so i think it's making content or um, information that is developmentally appropriate that I don't know, like we're all allowed to put our own perspective and lens on it. So why do we have to couple it with shame? Why can't you just say there's this thing called consent and this is what it looks like? It doesn't have to be verbal. Like learn how to read body cues. Is she pulling away? Is he pulling away? Mm -hmm. Does she seem like it's like enthusiastic? Like these are things to look out for. Um, This is how you don't get an STD, right? This is how you put on a condom. I mean, if you made the content less, I, I don't know what they're showing nowadays, but I remember like what I saw in school and it was so it was so boring and then so electrified with fear. Yeah. Like I just remember them showing like genitalia that was infected with X, Y, or Z. <laughs> and they're like, this is what happens. I'm like, oh my God. Which probably is just, re- it's just traumatizing. traumatizing. traumatizing It's like just seeing that is traumatizing. Right. And then you start to equate like sex with disease, sex with unwanted pregnancy, sex with rape, sex with non-consensual behavior before you're ever even taught that it can be beautiful, that it can be a pathway to the divine, that it can be healing, that it is good for you. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you were taught that food only cause diabetes and obesity mm-hmm. before you ever learned about the nutritional qualities or how good food can make you feel. And it's yeah. like we need both. You, and you develop an eating disorder. So mm-hmm. what do we develop? We develop a disorder when it comes to our sensuality and our bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think young boys instinctively for some reason that uh, – and obviously their anatomy is different. So maybe that plays a role into it when they start going through puberty and and – understanding like turn on but boys will masturbate and girls don't like we don't inherently know that that's available to us and a lot of the times I think we're told it's not like don't you dare don't even I know so many women that haven't even seen their parts like how you have you've had a kid (laughs) what do you mean you don't know what it looks like (laughs) so this is so funny I'm curious about that because I mean at least like in my circles like I know that like a lot of them were experimenting with pleasure really, really early. And I'm just read Dr. Emily Nagowski's book called Come As You Are. And she has a whole chapter on it's like same parts arranged differently. And she talks, she shows like embryos and like babies in utero and how we have like this, the genitalia is the exact same until like week 14 or something. Mm-hmm. And then so it's like 
even like the clitoris starts to elongate the turns into the penis. Like the testes are like similar to the bulbs of the clitoris. So it's like almost same, same parts, but they just go into different shapes. And I think that that as a concept would, would do a lot of good if it went more mainstream because we would let go of these ideas that like, oh, well, men are naturally more sexual than women, which is they've proven is not true mm-hmm. if women feel safe. Mm-hmm. That women actually have that heterosexual women, and we, you know, we were talking about um, sex at dawn, mm-hmm. and they did a study on heterosexual women where they would hook people up to, like, hook their brain up to machines and then show them different types of porn. And, like, predictably, like, straight men were, like, turned on by straight porn. Gay men were turned on by gay male porn. Gay women were turned on by gay female porn. But straight women were turned on by all of it, including bonobos having sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is interesting, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like this becomes, like, the vessel for procreation and like the species trying to propagate and and populate the planet mm-hmm. um but this idea that women have a lower sex drive it's like no we live in a predatory sexual society where women ultimately do not feel safe and so that becomes breaks for our sex drive so dr ellen nagowski talks about this as well and come as you are that we have we all have accelerators and we all have breaks and for all of us if we don't feel safe that's going to be a break so if we're living in a society that is mm-hmm. not safe for women to express their sexuality or if we get slut shamed for it mm-hmm. then like of course your turn on is not going to be as available yeah and i i think that for some reason, at least maybe this is the case with my upbringing and the people that I know growing up, but like our moms didn't teach us about our bodies either. I remember mm-hmm. that sex talk was so awkward. She's like, you, you know that there's different anatomy and what it's for, right? And I was like, yeah, sure, mom. She's like, okay, just making sure. And that was kind of it. That oh. was the sex talk that we had. We never talked about um, I I think the first time I masturbated, I was 16. So that's pretty old compared to what a boy is doing. I think I, mean, I think I was like nine. I was pretty young. I remember Whoa. when I was like two or three, I was mm-hmm. like on a coffee table and I was like <laughs> like riding the coffee table and I was, I was little, like a toddler. And my mom and sister were like, what are you doing, Emily? And I was like, it feels really good. Oh, and like wow. to their credit, I don't think they were shaming me. They yeah. were just like, maybe that's better for your for the – bedroom yeah so i i have a book that i've given my son one is called no a first book on consent and then i just have a book called where do babies come from which is because he's going to be a big brother like his dad is having a baby with his new girlfriend and so we're like having that conversation and there's this amazing book it's pretty woke where it's like it manages to talk about an entire it manages to talk about procreation without mentioning gender Mm. where it's like some people have uteruses and some people have sperm and you need an egg and a sperm and some bodies Anyway, it's not talking about the actual act of intercourse, but it's talking about like, it's actually really great. It's called um, Where Do Babies Come From? But my son is pretty, he's four and he's like pretty knowledgeable, at least about like, okay, this egg has a story. This sperm has a story. The the baby's being housed in this person's uterus. Um, and yet we've not had like a sex talk yet because I, it feels too early. Like he wouldn't really understand yeah. it. But he's like always touching his penis and like always like experimenting with his own body but i'm curious when it comes time for your kids to be exposed to both sex and sexuality and having the porn conversation like how do you anticipate having those conversations irrespective of your role in it so i think i'm in agreement with probably almost everyone when it says when i say that i do not want porn to be the instruction manual for either of my children and if i have more it doesn't matter if like they're young boys or young girls like i just that is not a tool for anyone under 18 mm-hmm. um, to to learn from, right? And it's we don't realize it's like watching Fast and the Furious and that's how you're going to learn to drive. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't work. Uh, what they don't understand is that consent is obviously happening off camera. So if you see something that looks aggress- aggressive, that has already been established that that's okay before the cameras start rolling. Mm-hmm. You can't really explain that to a, a younger person. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really even <laughs> explain that to some like adults, honestly. <laughs> Like they just assume that that's okay and on the table. But um, I think the consent thing is interesting because uh, my husband and I have some like really open and deep conversations around like our past and um, especially like previous partners and that kind of thing. And the no thing is interesting. So I always thought that too, like no means no, right? That just seems obvious. But he's like, I've been with so many women that that was like a game they would play. 
And I was like, whoa, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's so dangerous, especially if you're young and you haven't established the rules of that game. Or if you don't even know how to find your own boundaries, which I think we often don't. Yeah. And he's like, so that can be really confusing. And I was like, well, you that so obviously I think that when you have two young boys, they're going to be more comfortable with dad when it comes to the sex talk. And he's probably going to get into more of like the nitty gritty of the details of that. And I think that's probably his role. Um, But when it comes to consent, I think that this is something that my husband obviously wasn't taught, which is if that's the case and maybe you have someone who doesn't know their own boundaries and they're saying no or they're playing with no as a toy, um, just don't do it. And like don't play that game don't play that game yeah you you are out like i need a yes i need your body to say yes and if you're giving me a verbal no unless it's established that this is part of the game and we have another word that means stop just don't engage because as a as a mom of two young boys i don't want them to get in trouble because there was some kind of miscommunication and i think sometimes when we hear that there's um any kind of even like clunky interaction that it's automatically painted as malicious and violent and with cruel intent. And that's not always the case. We have two young people that are trying to like figure out nonverbal communication and like this really intimate new space. So mm-hmm. what some person might perceive as being like, this was a huge violation is just really like clunkiness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah. establishing that, um, that conversation around, like if she is not comfortable with her boundaries and she doesn't know what no means, then you need to have that conversation with her about what no means to you. Yeah. No means stop. Yeah, that seems so beautiful. And and I'm so glad to see like younger generations, people in their 20s and, and teenagers now, like the word consent is used a lot. I didn't even really hear that word it was not part of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 44 and I didn't really start hearing that in the sex space until like four or five years ago, honestly. Mm-hmm. And now it feels like we're in like introducing it early to children mm-hmm. on the playground even. Like forget about sexual consent. It's like consent around toys or play or homework or whatever. Yeah, we don't do like, you know, the whole like go give grandma a kiss. And you're like, I don't want to. And you force it. We don't do that either. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. To like don't make your kid override their own body instincts they're and then wonder why they're overriding it when they're teenagers. Mm-hmm. So like these two concepts of one enthusiastic consent that's mm-hmm. like I'm saying a yes, my body's a yes, like mm-hmm. this idea that mm-hmm. you're waiting for an enthusiastic yes, mm-hmm. an enthusiastic consent and also accelerated consent, which is something that I've thankfully been learning like as I've been more adventurous in play spaces that like just because someone said yes you may touch my hair does not mean that you can kiss my neck and so it's like accelerated consent that anytime you want to accelerate something that you get consent for that next thing Mm -hmm. and I think that that if done well and if trained into a culture can be really sexy even Mm -hmm. and there's ways to do it that's not like um, may I now touch your elbow and like feel nerdy? See, and that's where it's going. Unfortunately, I talk to a lot of guys in college, and whether it's you know extended family members and that, and they just don't date because they're so terrified mm. that they're gonna you know get in trouble because they didn't ask every step of the way or that they held you know a hand the wrong way. Like it's gotten to like this very extreme overcorrection. I feel like, mm-hmm. and I don't like I personally even back when I was younger and like and dating, I wouldn't want to have to be like, is this okay? Can we check this off? I didn't say yes. I think you have have to learn how to read someone's energy in their body and mm-hmm. we're so out of touch with each other we yeah. spend so many time so much of our time on our devices that we're not connecting and we're almost like developing um it's in this one book by brett weinstein and it's like showing up as kind of like a symptom of autism not that you're developing autism or anything like that but like you know how there's they think that there's like a mirror neuron Um, abnormality almost where you can't read empathy like body language and facial expressions are very hard for most people on the spectrum Mm -hmm. that that kind of shows up with people that have uh, like an addiction or too much time on screens and devices Mm -hmm. so that you stop understanding nonverbal communication wow so if that's happening at a large scale like how do we cultivate that that way we can have these really present and passionate exchanges with someone without having like a contract and right can I touch your elbow well hopefully at this point within the procedure like you trust me I trust you and I can very much tell when you start to back away or that you're uncomfortable and then I can pull away so I think this goes back to our original theme of like why isn't everyone consciously creating their Mm -hmm. relationships Mm -hmm. And, and it's like if you've had that conversation beforehand, of like mm-hmm. these are my desires, these are my boundaries, this is what I'm comfortable mm-hmm. with, then you're, you're creating a container where both people can feel safe mm-hmm. inside of that. Mm-hmm. And so just to, to close out, like, you know, we've talked about like the, the pros of consciously creating. So why do you think more, more people aren't 
consciously creating their relationships. It's so, it's very painful. It's hard. It hurts, <laughs> right? It's so much easier to just slap on a set of presets onto a relationship or onto a person and say, this is just what we're going to do. It's easier. I don't have to understand why I feel jealous. I don't have to understand why I just immediately go to rage. I don't understand why I feel like I have a sense of ownership or possessiveness over you or why I think love is only conditional. It's only on the condition that you are faithful to me and that you we you make a hundred thousand dollars a year and that you only work 35 because I need me time like we late we throw on so many conditions and then argue why we don't have unconditional love so it's so much easier to just say oh I love you unconditionally but and then you have to do all of these here's things. my set of preset mm-hmm. contract conditions right and I don't want to look at me and I don't want to have to do the work because it takes a long time I mean that was it was years of us back and forth back and forth and tears and um almost almost like leaving each other honestly because mm-hmm. it was so difficult so it's not easy and yeah. i think that's why but i think most exciting and beautiful things are on the other side of difficult mm, difficult conversations yeah and that feels like if you have tools to let the repair create deeper intimacy then yes it might be hard but both of you are going to learn and grow along the way mm-hmm. Um, so before we wrap, I know that you just recently graduated or, or graduating from Ziva Online, yes. and I'd love to hear like what's been your experience learning to meditate, and and how's it changed your relationship with stress? Um, what that what's that look like for you? So I have tried so many of the apps. I have a husband that meditates very frequently and is always you know trying to nudge me and make me have some kind of daily practice. I've never been able to do it. I always felt. Like, I can't stop my thoughts, so I must just really suck at this thing called meditating. And I came across your course, and it just felt like the perfect time for me to sign up. Um, I knew you were going to come in, and I wanted to be prepared. I think it was day one or day two that I was doing the meditation practice. And you introduced this idea of it's okay to be sloppy, which I just really loved. I'm like, okay, I don't have to have my special chair and I don't have to be fully erect and I don't have to eliminate all of my thoughts. I'm allowed to get sloppy, slouchy, relaxed, and um, that's okay. That's just another way to meditate. So I'm only like a couple minutes in and (laughs) I'm sitting in this chair and I just almost like clonk out. And I was like, I was not asleep. I was fully in my body, but I was just that relaxed. And I was like, holy cow, this is day two. (laughs) What's going to happen? What's going to happen when I graduate? So it's made me a lot more present, a lot less reactive. And I think the whole goal is to not identify with your thoughts. And I think that this can make you an observer of your thoughts. Like, okay, this is a thought, but that's not me. This is a thought, that's not me. This is a feeling, that's not me. And it helps you um, It helps you when you're raising two small kids right? and you're yeah. super busy. Like that tantrum's not about you. Your anger is not, is not you. So you're able to kind of observe it and then respond instead of reacting, which I think is huge, especially from someone that is like a recovering um, like anger monster. So... <laughs> It's just, it's helped me be more grateful and be more present and then not associate with my emotions as much. Mm, so beautiful. So sign up, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Ziva <laughs> online. It's where it's at. And then I'd love to hear about your experience because it was, it was really brave, like diving in and doing this sacred sexuality work mm-hmm. and doing pleasure prayer. But if you want to just share a little bit about your experience of, of this new work of like the emotional alchemy or the pleasure prayer, what you enjoyed, what felt scary, how it's impacted your relationship. Oh my gosh. I don't even know where to begin with this. So I had the luxury of having my husband be part of the practice, which was really incredible because just seeing him be so vulnerable and really lean into everything was just, I was like, man, I really love this man so much. So I think it can be really easy to, uh, to not give that appreciation when you see someone every single day and like they don't make the bed when they get up or they leave their underwear next to their bed and you're like come on (laughs) then when you see them in this this space in this container like wow you are just so beautiful and I just love you so much Mm. and uh it it provided a depth like a new depth to our relationship which it's like how deep can you go like we keep testing that so let's just keep on with that theme but being able to express without judgment I'm purging this and your mom this and your dad this and there's no judgment it's really like this bonding experience and then to be in this place where you're experiencing pleasure and you're in charge of your own pleasure it's not your partner's responsibility and you can see my narrative um almost immediately was 
there's a goal I have to get to. I have to get to an orgasm or why am I not, why am I not um, like speeding up? Why am I feeling like I'm late or I'm slow or it's not progressing how I want? And it's this idea of control. So normally I think I would put that on him, right? Like either, come on, he's not doing, he's not hitting all the right spots or he's probably anxious with me or he wants me to hurry up and I'm giving him this dialogue that he's not giving me and it still exists without him. So I'm able to Mm. observe that and say, nope, nope, nope nope, I don't want this. That's not the point. Just be with your body. There's no race. There's no, there is no, um, like you're not supposed to hit certain, um, like check marks, check marks. Like a yeah, finish line. exactly. It's just to be present. I really love that idea of like, oh, we think that we're, we think it's our partner's fault. It's easy to, to like just project onto them. Yeah. But actually when you're in a self-pleasure practice, you're like, oh, well, there's it's no partner me. to blame. So look at me shaming myself or thinking that I'm late. And so how can I come back to the now? Come and of back course to the now. that stress is going to close you up. Mm-hmm. So that's all me. And then what a blessing because now I'm in charge of, um, of like of healing that and being more open. And then after the whole practice last night, all of today, Eric has been like right behind me and snuggling me and nuzzling and like grabbing me and just so enamored (laughs) like he hasn't been like this in at least a year we have a new baby so we've all been tired and you know sex is not on the table as often as it used to be but Mm -hmm. he like I was charged and he was charged and we have just been like just little you know the little heart bubbles are everywhere just like so in love and ready to go oh my gosh it's so sweet it's so inspiring because I hadn't really thought about doing this work with couples and Mm -hmm. so this is my first time working with a couple so it feels really exciting and for me personally just like hearing you both like crying tears of gratitude as if your dream had just come true was so (laughs) validating and rewarding and like why I do this work where it's like oh if manifestation is about having a clear vision and feeling good like this is one of the easiest most beautiful most like nature given ways for us to get there so mm-hmm. thank you for your bravery yeah. and thank you so much for being a guest today on why isn't everyone doing this um, I know I want to send people to your podcast chatting with Candice but where else can people find you um, if you go to chattingwithcandice.com it has all my social links the podcast Patreon all that good stuff but thank you for having me this is amazing thank you for coming to North Carolina and I just feel so honored to have gotten to know you yeah I feel yeah. like we're just, we're just getting started yeah, we got big so stuff to do yeah All right, well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us on Why Isn't Everyone Doing This? So the real exciting after party is happening over at zivameditation.com slash why this, where you can find some masterclasses and some bonus content from many of our amazing guests. So thank you so much for joining us, and I'll see you over at zivameditation.com slash why this. All right, I love you, friends. See you on the next episode. One of the most beautiful concepts from the Vedas is the idea that bliss is your birthright. 24 hour a day bliss is your birthright and anything standing in the way of that is stress. Now I'm curious what you think might happen if a whole group of people who all believe that bliss is our birthright came together to meditate, to breathe, to pray, and to put our attention on that which we want to grow. Well, good news, you're about to find out. I have a very special invitation for you to join me for our next live bliss activation. Now, this is totally free. I do it about once a month because teaching live is my most favorite thing, getting to connect to you, answering your questions, and meditating with a big group of amazing people around the world is my highest delight. So all you have to do to join me live for free is go to zivameditation.com slash activate. That is Z-I-V-A meditation.com slash activate. Activate. Join me and amazing like-minded people from around the world to activate the bliss that is your birthright.